Have you ever wondered what it's like to leave a stable corporate job for work at a tech startup? Well, today, Samantha Koo is here to talk about her experience in banking compared to her current role at Square, a fintech startup. And yes, <laughs> there is more to startup culture than just ping pong tables and snacks in the office. Welcome to Figuring It Out, the modern millennial playbook for life in our 20s and 30s. I'm your host, Melissa Guller, and each week we'll explore a new topic on work, relationships, lifestyle, and more. Now, I've never personally worked for a company that I would describe as being very corporate. I currently work at a tech startup called Teachable in New York City. But most of my friends actually work outside of the tech industry, and frankly, outside of startups altogether. When I graduated from college, most of my peers were going to law school, graduate programs, med school, you've heard of those. And I always envied their certainty and their stable career paths. And I've occasionally wondered how I would have done in a corporate environment, but I think it's far more common for people to wonder about the reverse. I'm talking about people working in a corporate role, like banking or finance, or even jobs requiring some kind of advanced degree and wearing a suit to work every day. Those jobs are a great fit for a lot of people. But aside from the wardrobe, what are the real differences between working for a corporation versus a startup? That's exactly what Samantha Koo is here to talk about. By the end of this episode, we'll learn more about key differences Samantha has noticed between startup culture and corporate culture. And she'll share more about her decision to leave a stable job in banking for her role at Square, a tech startup. She'll also share more about how philosophies on diversity and inclusion vary between the workplaces and why the startup role ended up being a more natural fit for her. So first, let's meet Samantha. Samantha Koo is the head of operations for Square Capital, the lending arm of Square Inc. Although Square started with a simple white credit card reader, today they help sellers of all sizes start, run, and grow their businesses. After starting her career in banking, Samantha transitioned to Square in 2015 and built their operations team from the ground up. She currently leads a team of over 30 employees across three offices in San Francisco, New York, and Henderson. And alongside her team, Samantha is responsible for operational strategies for loan lifecycle across all products, including underwriting, servicing, and collections. To start off, let's have Samantha tell us a bit more about her experience in her own words. To start, can you tell us a little bit more about your career and how you went from your first job at Citibank to your current role at Square? Yeah, definitely. Um, So I graduated in 2010 when the economy was really still suffering from the financial collapse. And uh, my senior year, I think I interviewed at 100 places and I was interviewing for everything that was available, Um, sales roles. I even interviewed to be an ambassador for Oscar Mayer. And honestly, um, I joined banking because that was what was hiring. It wasn't about pursuing what I studied or about pursuing dreams. This was really just about getting a job and repaying my student loans. And I got my offer from Citibank about four hours after commencement. And it was just 
such a, an immense feeling of relief. I burst into tears. I was so excited that I didn't have to move back in with my parents. I was going <laughs> to be, yeah, financially uh, sufficient. Um, and so I um, found out later that it was actually the reason that I was set apart from the other candidates was actually because of my follow-up. So sending a really personalized message and personalized email to everyone that I interviewed with. So it really felt like my break was made by um, a man named Bruce Stanwood, who was Citibank's senior credit officer at the time. And it just, it felt like he just took a chance on me based on such a small detail. And sometimes I guess that's really all you need sometimes to, um, to kind of launch your career. So, so that summer I moved to New York and I joined their commercial banking analyst program. Um, I was there for uh, about nine months and we were living in New York, basically going to school, um, while getting paid and living in Manhattan for the first time. So super exciting. Um, I met my now husband in that program, and he was originally from San Francisco. So we did the long distance thing for about a year from the East Coast to San Francisco. And eventually I moved out to SF to be with him. Um, so I bounced around from a few banks from Wells Fargo to First Republic. And at First Republic, I worked for a manager who was a super high producer, um, didn't really care about people, about his team, about retaining talent. He really just cared about, at the end of the day, about the numbers. And that's what the bank cared about too. So he was really, really highly regarded. Um, he led with a lot of fear and aggression and by all means get the job done. So my happiness was really directly tied to his. And this type of work environment seems um, really, really normal for banking. It was just what was expected, the work wasn't supposed to be fun. And I was content because everything else about the job was great. Um, First Republic is a great place to work. I really liked my colleagues. Uh, the deals I was working on was really interesting. But I guess it wasn't until uh, because of that, that I would actually take a call from a recruiter to hear about um, new opportunities, because there was just one thing that really wasn't keeping me at First Republic. And the one thing was the, like the management style? Exactly. So you did choose to take a chance and transition into fintech. So what was that transition like? Yeah, definitely. Um, so yeah, so I, I got the call from a recruiter from Square um, on Link, uh, who just found me on LinkedIn. And I really probably wouldn't have taken the call at all since I was I was content. I was fine in banking. Um, but Square um, just seemed really interesting. They were doing something so different. Um, they were providing financial inclusion to a very traditionally underserved market. Um, I was seeing it everywhere at restaurants, at, um, at food trucks, at um, farmers markets. And, and my parents are immigrants who run a small business. So they're part of that really traditionally underserved market that Square supports. So I knew the company well. Um, and so the, the decision was kind of a tough one because leaving banking, graduating in a down economy, getting a really stable job was such, such a success to me in itself. So leaving a very, very stable field like banking um, in a market where my skills are transferable, if I wasn't happy at First Republic, I could go to another bank. Um, it's the only thing I've ever done. I don't know how to do anything else. Um, but living in Silicon Valley, it's hard to not get caught up in, in the tech atmosphere and wanting to know why it's such a big deal. So um, I wasn't married. I didn't have any kids. It's kind of seemed like a now or never type of thing. 
and um, definitely took a huge pay cut um, and banked a lot on uh, the equity compensation and kind of counted on um, hopefully Square takes off. I was pre-IPO at the time, so hopefully things work out. And if not, I can always go back to banking. But of course, it will cost me the years of experience that I'll spend at Square that I would otherwise have been working my way up the ladder in banking. Was there something in particular that made you decide to take the leap? My husband definitely encouraged me. He basically said that um, he knew I wasn't happy in banking. I think content isn't necessarily the right word. It's more of a, um, I was fine, um, but I wasn't leaving work happy. I was dreading going to the office every day, but that was just what work was. Um, It was just a means to an end. And uh, he had, he went to school in the Bay Area, has a lot of friends in tech, and he knew that um, it was an environment that I could really thrive in because it was open, fast-paced. I could be myself. I didn't have to mirror um, basically men in banking, which I had to do a lot of and be, almost to make men feel more comfortable around me. I had to try to change who I was to be like men, um, the way I sat, the way I uh, the, what I drank, what I ate, everything, um, just to make people feel more comfortable. I couldn't just be myself. So my husband really pushed me to just try this out. And he said, um, the risk is really not that big for a company like Square. Um, we had already been valued at over a billion dollars. The valuation was very high and we were predicted to go IPO that year. So while the risk wasn't super high, um, the payout likely wouldn't have been either. So it, it was definitely, I think, a change in lifestyle as far as compensation at the time. But um, but I think it was the best thing I've done. And what would you say are some of the other differences now that you've been both in the corporate setting and now the startup world? Yeah, I think uh, it really taught me to demand more in the quality of my life. Um, in banking, I like I said, I spent my days mirroring what I thought was needed to be taken seriously. Uh, I even tried to lower the pitch of my voice so that I didn't sound so girly. Um, really? And yeah, and uh, stuff like that, where it was just like, okay, how do I get the same respect that um, uh, my 40-year-old male counterpart is getting? Um, but when I joined Square, I actually felt like I didn't fit in there either. I wasn't a techie. I wasn't, um, my banking persona didn't make sense there. So, uh, so for probably the first month or so, I questioned if that was even the right culture for me. Cause I was so used to just trying to fit the mold of finance that this doesn't make sense to me at all. Um, but I think after a while I started to really understand that I could just be myself. I could, voice my opinion um, without having to give a power pose or change the intonation of my voice. Um, I could be challenged and still respected. Um, And I think that was pretty much the biggest difference. People here really value individualism and diverse perspectives. And I think that's what makes the environment so great and why things move so quickly. Do you think that that's a trend that is true for most startups? I do. I think so. That's an interesting question because there's so much media surrounding tech right now and the sexism and um, and unequal treatment or disparity. But I think the biggest point of that is that people are talking about it in tech. People are so transparent. Um, And if anyone's feeling like they're not being treated equally, uh, it's being very publicized. And it doesn't even have to be anonymous. But I think Susan Fowler is a great example of being so brave to come forward. And that really set off this waterfall effect of people coming forward saying, yeah, that's not right. In contrast, in banking and in finance, there's 
a high level of sexism. Um, there's definitely not equal opportunity for everybody, but nobody talks about it because that's not the environment it is. So it does seem like at least in Silicon Valley, the industry standard is demand more, want more, and don't be afraid to talk about it. Yeah. Something that I love that you mentioned is that now in this startup world, you've learned to demand more of your quality of life. And of course, I'm sure there's a great fit in banking for a lot of people, but you made the proactive choice to just find a different environment that was a better fit for you. Yeah, I think so. And then I'm curious too. So we've talked now about the startup world a little bit, but it's a, you know, a topical time. A lot of um, workplace issues are kind of coming to the forefront. I'm curious, what would you say are some of the biggest challenges facing the startup workplace currently? So um, I think there's definitely always going to be a misalignment of goals. Um, in a very siloed field in finance, you have one end goal, and that's to close a deal and generate revenue. But when you're in an environment that's not very structured, um, everyone has an idea of how to really sh- you know, I think Steve Jobs said you have to make a dent in the universe. Um, everybody wants has this grand idea of what's really going to move the needle. And because there are so many ideas and so many big personalities trying to push those ideas fo- forward, there's uh, definitely, I think, a lack of structure as far as prioritization of what to do next. Um, so that was actually a really interesting challenge to come into, especially being in a credit or operational field. We're not the group that's going to push the the brand new product forward that's going to drive a huge amount of revenue for the company. But we're the group that's going to keep the lights on and make sure things are moving smoothly. Um, So, um, yeah, so I think that's prioritization of what keeps the lights on versus what the brand new product is, is probably a very common challenge, especially because all of those um, initiatives take end resources, which is always short. And are there any ways or um, have you found any success getting a higher priority for things that your team is working on? Being very, very forceful in that we, just by way of explanation, so my team is the operations team. We do a lot of the day-to-day manual work and our job is really to identify what we're doing the same every single day or where those manual inefficiencies and friction points are so that we can automate it and make it a smoother experience for our customers. So I think the easy thing for our product teams to do is say, well, they're already doing it. They can keep doing it, but they're not counting for the actual time and um, and actually cost of just overhead of doing this manually. So being able to back up arguments with solid metrics of this is what it's actually costing the company to not automate this system um, really helps the argument a lot. Um, but overall, I think having a very clear conviction in your opinion has been a challenge for me, but something I'm consistently working on. I think for a while, I've just thought that I need to back everything I say up with facts and I need to be 100% correct to even bring it up in the first place. But that shouldn't be the case. I think my experience should allow me to be able to give my opinion and have that taken seriously. That's so interesting because I think what you said earlier, you know, bringing more data to the table is a great suggestion. But to your point, once you've had some expertise it should be enough to say that you have a recommendation or to have conviction about something. But how did you learn how to do that? So it actually kind of all comes around. I left finance thinking that um, I'd find greener pastures and less bureaucracy in tech. And I definitely found that. But it doesn't just disappear, um, and especially for people who have very traditional backgrounds, too. So um, so I've always considered myself a very confident person. Um, I've always been outgoing. I didn't feel like I... Uh, 
was unsure of myself in any way. But um, it wasn't until I was in um, a management position that I realized how muted my voice actually was. Um, in meetings, I, I only contributed facts, not opinions. And even when I speak up, if I only do it if I'm 100% correct. And sometimes I find myself even waiting for the right moment to jump in. Um, there's a, a theory called the inner critic that really speaks to what this is. And it's that little voice that's self-preservation in your head that tells you, don't do it. You don't want to look stupid. Um, make sure you're right about this. And it's actually worth going out and putting yourself out there for, which is almost ridiculous to say out loud because you're just talking. It's just a conversation and meeting. Um, but still, I think when I'm faced with an aggressive individual, I, I get flustered in the conversation. I'm sure you're not alone in that either. I have a feeling that that inner critic is something that a lot of people are dealing with. But have you found ways to silence or quiet the inner critic? Yeah, definitely. Um, so so I had an experience with um, a sales manager who um, he had someone on his team who was doing something not in the best interest of our customers. And it's my job to make sure that this doesn't happen. So, um, so I wrote an email and CC the manager and he replied all and um, added several more people to the thread and was calling me passive aggressive and attacking my character. Um, and I replied, uh, basically stating more facts, reiterating my position and the severity of the situation. But in hindsight, I realized that he was attacking my character and my tone, but nothing to actually do with what was being said. And my response to him with just facts, I don't know if that would resonate with him at all. So, um, so at that point, I actually engaged a career coach because I really just wanted to gain more confidence in how to respond to this sort of situation. Um, I was embarrassed, I was stressed, and I wanted to take back control of that situation because that's really what that manager did. He disempowered me um, and my authority on that email so that his direct and everybody else on that thread realized in that situation, I was not the authority figure. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, so my career coach, her name's Terry Archall. She's amazing um, and such a huge advocate of women. And she's the one who actually introduced me to the inner critic. Um, she had this really interesting exercise that she gave me in which, um, so it sounds a little um, a little floofy, but Basically, you, <laughs> yeah, you, um, so you take a piece of paper and put all of your electronics away and you write a conversation to your inner critic and you write your conversation using your right hand and respond as your inner critic with your left hand. And you try to just be present and let it flow and see what it says. Because at the end of the day, your inner critic really is, it was built from people in your life trying to protect you. Um, and you learn how to self-preserve just trying to make sure that you're in a safe environment. So you want to not silence it, but rather acknowledge it and try to recognize whether it's something that you really should listen to at the time or how can you overcome and work with it. So the conversation I was having basically with myself um, was, um, it was really enlightening because it was more of a, um, I think I asked myself, what should I call you? And the, the answer that floated to my mind was buzz because it's almost like a bug in my ear that's just constantly buzzing and not letting me just focus on what's in front of me. Um, so kind of unpacking that and peeling that back, I was realizing that I'm not really, it, I'm letting everything that's peripheral to the actual situation cloud what's really happening. And that's causing me to want to doubt myself and doubt what I'm going to say. That's such an interesting exercise. I wonder how did the right hand and the left hand help you? So it's supposed to be because your right hand, well, I'm a dominant right hand. So it's supposed to be your dominant hand is really speaking from exactly what you would normally say, but your left hand, you actually have to concentrate so much on 
the physical aspect of writing with your non-dominant hand that um, what would subconsciously come to you should just flow naturally. That's so interesting. It's adding almost a physical barrier to being able to have that critic come out. Right. Exactly. Hmm. Do you have an example or you can make up a fictional example of something that you may have written down and then how your critic may have responded? Yeah. So I think um, a good one is um, why asking your critic why you felt like you had to be there right now and unpacking that situation of what you're in that makes you feel unsafe or are um, not confident in your response. Why is it? Why do you even have to ask your inner critic? a question about that entire that situation that you're in. That's such an interesting awareness that I don't think we often step back and analyze because we have inner monologues all the time and we talk to ourselves. But at least for me, it's not very often that I take a step back and ask, well, why did I react that way? Completely. And I actually think it was really helpful of me to for me to name my inner critic because then you acknowledge that it's there, you respect it, you realize that it's there to protect you, but then you work with it rather than just trying to silence it. Is there a time or an example where you came across something unexpected or a challenge in the workplace or with your team and how you dealt with it? Yeah, I think, I think the, the situation with that sales manager is pretty, it was very, very unexpected. Um, I've never been kind of called out and embarrassed like that in an email, not even in finance where it's traditionally more uh, bureaucratic and, and even with a manager at that time who wasn't very supportive. Um, So I think what I really wish had happened, um, was that I didn't get so flustered. I didn't need to find a career coach. Um, And at the time, I actually spoke to the head of my group. Um, She is uh, an amazing, inspirational force of a woman. She came from Yahoo, has an extensive career in private equity, um, and and she was one of six women in private equity at the time. So she um, had asked that she be added to the email thread and then uh, actually just reverted authority back to me by replying all because of her authority position. So I think what um, what I want from that experience is to have the confidence to not give someone else the power to make me feel this way, because this is what I was trying to get away from in banking. And what I'm working toward as a manager, I want to be able to just have conviction and, and not need someone with more authority to back me in order to get my point across. In hindsight, in this situation, I really was not being passive aggressive. If anything, I was being directly aggressive and I was doing my job. And, um, and I can't help but wonder at this also in that situation, if he would have called me passive aggressive, if I were a man. So it was very unexpected to come across this situation that, um, I think that, so this was about a year and a half ago. No one had been talking yet about, um, sexism in the workplace in tech. So at the time, very surprising now, maybe a little less. Let's talk about, though, the women and the men in tech. So in the last year or two, more conversations are coming up. People are talking more about women in the workplace, which I think is great that more conversations are happening. Is there anything that you notice or think about now that kind of more conversations are coming to the forefront that you think is important to be talking about? Yeah, I think it's it's a very fine balance um, of we're talking so much about about inequality, but I think we are almost getting to the point where there are so many things we can't talk about. Personally, I'm extremely liberal. I 
think I really fit the, I fit in well with the, uh, the San Francisco liberal bubble, but I know that working at Square, if I were not liberal, it'd be a very, very tough environment for me. Because if you're a conservative, if you have different beliefs, um, it's not a very open environment to that. If anything, I would say that it almost led to the the shock and awe of the last presidential election. Nobody was talking about if they felt otherwise, that if you have to be progressive or nothing. And it's almost led to this kind of elitism of if you're not on this one track of thinking, no one else wants to hear about it. And it seems like that's kind of the issue now. We can talk about the uh, progressive issues openly, but everyone needs to be on the same page with it. Uh, So we're not really getting any diverse perspectives of anyone else who might believe something else. Do you have any idea about how we could encourage more diverse perspectives? So I grew up in Wisconsin and I know um, the people in the Midwest are so friendly. They're so nice, but the exposure that they have to what we have in California is much different. And sometimes when I visit my parents at home, um, even just some of the people I run into, some of the the things they say uh, catch me off guard and would otherwise, I think, be construed as offensive. So I'll get things like, um, oh, you speak English so well because I'm Asian, but I grew up in the United States. I've never lived anywhere else. I would never say you speak English very well to anybody else. So, um, so stuff like that, where it's almost like, okay, that was kind of rude, but, um, but I think what we need to be doing is not taking those conversations offensively, but rather, uh, let's unpack that. And let me explain why that question probably isn't necessary and why, why someone might find that offensive and just really taking the time to explain situations to people, um, to really broaden their exposure. Yeah. I think that's great advice to be both patient about somebody else's understanding and to really approach it. It seems more of like an open discussion or just kind of an educating and then a listening instead of assuming that somebody meant to offend or taking a defensive or offensive position. Right. Exactly. Do you have any other thoughts on just kind of today's workplace that we haven't covered yet? Specifically in tech, I think one thing that I'm noticing that's really interesting um, is, and maybe not just in tech, it seems like maybe overall in the workplace is there, it seems to be um, a wider and wider generational disconnect when you have very tenured professionals who feel strongly about uh, Gen X millennial snowflakes who uh, just feel very soft and complain about everything and want everything to be very unique and just have no grit. Um, and that's kind of the reputation that they have. And then in, um, in reverse, Gen X seems to really distrust the slow traditional ways of their, um, their more experienced peers. So, so there's uh, back to the theme of dialogue. It seems like there's very little dialogue going on between the two. Um, and I think there's so much that they can learn from each other. Um, And it's almost like neither one wants to admit that they don't know something or be embarrassed because they are being taught something by a 21-year-old or a 55-year-old. I wonder, do you have any ideas about how we could encourage the generations to interact more? Like in a tech company, are they even in the same room? Absolutely. So um, especially at most of the tech companies these days, the average age is much younger than you'd say a bank. So, so Square has been very interesting because we do have a very diverse age group. Um, and I think what really helps is putting people on the same projects at the same flat level playing field. Um, everyone's opinion is just as important as the next person. Um, having 360 performance reviews or peer reviews to get feedback from 
um, from everybody, from diverse perspectives, not just your lead about what you're doing really well and where you can develop. Yeah. What you're hinting at too, is the fact that more diverse team members, more diverse companies, more diverse just thoughts in general, not only are they healthy and just, but they also seem to lead to better business outcomes. I completely agree because things need to change. They need to move. Square, I think, is a great example of that. Where um, we're, um, So Square Capital is the lending arm of Square, and we're lending to businesses that are really traditionally underserved by banks. And there's a reason that banks have not been able to provide financing to these tiny businesses. Um, they don't know how to underwrite them. They're so small, but but there are so many traditional underwriting fundamentals that still apply. Um, and then on the other side, underwriting to these smaller businesses is based on very, very new technology of um, just real-time data using machine learning and uh, AI. And so just finding the balance between the two is really opening up an entire new market and really providing economic empowerment to, to something that's never been done before. That's a great point. And since we were just talking about generations, something you just hinted at is that there's always new tech and new knowledge coming out. And it doesn't matter how old you are. That tech is new to everybody. So I think the playing field is a little more even than most people realize. Yeah, definitely. Do you have any personal role models or mentors? Definitely. Um, so my mom is probably um, my biggest role model for forever. She, we come from very, very different um, perspectives. She grew up super poor in Taiwan and um, never had the opportunity for higher education. And because of that, she's just worked herself, her and my father both have worked themselves to the bone to really make sure I had every opportunity that I could possibly want. Um, and she still does to this day. And, um, and I think her, she, it, she's never tired. It's just what keeps her going is her family and um, wanting to provide the best life for her children. And her entire life was spent just dedicated to our family. Um, so I, I hope that someday I can be as I think just dedicated as she is to anything in my life. Um, and, um, and although we come from such diverse perspectives and she'll never, I think, fully understand the world that I live in and I'll never understand the world that she lives in, um, her values are really something I hope to emulate. I was about to ask, how do your parents, you mentioned they were both immigrants, how do they feel about your tech job and your shift away from banking? So definitely not excited about it when it happened. Um, but <laughs> since, yeah, but since then, um, I think they've seen how happy I am. Uh, my, uh, my time is so flexible now too. In traditional fields, you have very set vacation days. There's no flexibility from work from home. But since I've joined Square, I've been able to visit them more. Um, they've been able to see the office to see what the big fuss is about with the free food and the, um, just the open office environment. And also they've been just following Square in the news and Square is constantly moving. And um, so I think now they're in a much more comfortable position. I'm also wondering, you have obviously this very big job at a growing company. Are there ways that you maintain a sense of work-life balance or is that all just a myth? No, I think that's definitely super promoted in um I think at least at Square. Um, so there are always exceptions and there are always busy periods, but I try to follow two rules just to make sure that I'm staying um, just in a mindset that I can really balance my work and my life. Um, so I 
Um, I do go by a no phones during dinner rule. And also if it's on my calendar, um, either if it's personally, like I'm going to yoga or taking time to read um, socially or professionally, I try to make it my best effort to honor that appointment. I think that's a great suggestion. Both of them, the no phones at dinner, the calendar, not just to other people, but to yourself as well. I think that's a great tip. When you're, I know your career is still growing constantly, but kind of looking back, what's something that you would say you're most proud of so far? Yeah. Um, so I think two things. So, um, so as a person, um, I'm most proud of that I've been able to help my parents financially. Um, so I mentioned my parents grew up extremely poor in Taiwan. They work super hard and they're on their feet every day. And it's very traditional for Taiwanese families to, for their, once uh, the children become adults, to give back to their families. Um, so since I've graduated, I've been in a position where I've been able to send money home every month. So hopefully they don't need to work as hard forever. And I know this setup isn't super common in the U.S., but um, definitely something I'm super proud to be able to do. Uh, and then secondly, I, I'm most proud of the environment that my team and I have built. Um, we're not afraid to disagree or push back on each other because we respect each other and we really celebrate our wins. And uh, when we do fall short, we fix things together and there's no blaming. There's such a cohesion of trust. People aren't afraid to speak up or point out what's broken. Um, so I, yeah, I think that my team and I are just, it's probably my favorite part of my job. Well, I love that because I think until you're in, unfortunately, a bad or a less than ideal working environment, you can't really appreciate just how wonderful it is to have a team where you feel respected, where you feel trusted, this sense of open communication, this kind of environment that you've built. So the fact that you've given that opportunity to your team, I think is really incredible. I guess now that we've talked kind of about what you've been most proud of, what are you thinking about next? What are your goals moving forward? Yeah. So, um, so I grew up in a restaurant. I love food. My husband and I are big foodies. So, um, so our next big risk that we're taking after jumping into tech. Um, so we're actually doing, um, restaurant investing and my husband is much more active in the business than I am, but, uh, there are five partners in the venture, um, including Jason Wing, who is the founder and CEO of Caviar, which was acquired by Square. So we overlapped a bit at Square too. And um, and it's a brand new uh, QSR concept called Chicken Rice. And so um, it's a we're trying to find the cohesion between um, where restaurants are usually have a very old school uh, logistical system. We're trying to incorporate tech while providing incredible food and incredible service and just high tech logistics and at a very inclusive price point. Um, and the head chef is uh, formerly of the three-star Michelin restaurant Cezanne in San Francisco. And he's really created a menu. I think that's really, even though it's a QSR, it's very high scale and very, um, there's been a lot of testing and he, he spends a lot of time on the food. So, so we're super excited about that and hoping that it really takes off. We've opened um, two locations in Berkeley and San Jose. That's so exciting. Well, not only am I hungry, but I think it's so great to hear about <laughs> how you've, you've blended this expertise in this tech world that you've grown with something that you enjoy. I mean, who doesn't enjoy food? Right, exactly. <laughs> we'll be sure to throw a link to your restaurant in the show notes so that people can check it out. And especially people who are in the Berkeley area, they can stop by. Amazing. Thank you. Yeah. What's something that you're currently figuring out? So definitely managing up. Um, I'm working with my career coach on that right now on the art of giving feedback to my own manager and um, making sure that I'm really 
protecting and looking out for the best interest in my team. Well, before we go, is there anything else that you haven't gotten to share? Um, I think just in general, try to stay present and enjoy the ride. Um, I think generationally, we were brought up to think that work is just a means to an end. But um, from personal experience, it really doesn't have to be the case. And I definitely don't have good days every day. But overall, I'm super happy right now. And I think that's um, it's meaningful enough to feel successful. And I think it's so refreshing, too, to hear somebody talk about being present, enjoying the team that you're building, and really enjoying the work that you're doing. Definitely. Well, it's been such a pleasure having you. Anywhere that people can find you if they want to connect or get in touch? Yeah, you can definitely find me on LinkedIn and also check out the uh, new restaurant concept um, or on Facebook. Perfect. And I'll put links to all of those in the show notes. Okay, awesome. Yeah. Thank you again so much for joining. Thank you. This week, we have a try it out challenge or something small you can try on your own time at home. Just like Samantha has done, we'd like to invite you to try writing out a conversation with your inner critic. So here's what you'll do. First, put away your electronics so you can really focus and get out just a notebook or any piece of paper and a pen to write with. First, you're gonna write a conversation to your inner critic with your dominant hand from your own perspective. And then you'll switch to your non-dominant hand to write the response from that inner critic. Now, your inner critic is usually a combination of everything you've learned from loved ones or your experiences. And instead of trying to quiet that voice, we want to try seeing what happens when you just see what you put down on paper naturally, exactly as that inner voice says. Once you see it, you'll have the opportunity to read through it and really think about how your inner voice speaks to you. Using the dominant versus the non-dominant hand just makes this a little bit more intentional. And if you do try this out, we would love to hear what you think. You can tell us more about your experience at figuringitoutpodcast.com slash five. That's the number five. Thank you so much for joining us this week. You can see links to Samantha's LinkedIn, her restaurant's website, eatchickenrice.com, and any episode references in the show notes at figuringitoutpodcast.com slash five. And by the way, Samantha will be back for round two in the next episode, where we'll be discussing tips for first-time managers. She'll share some misconceptions about mentors, how to give compassionate feedback, And Samantha will tell us the single most transformative decision she's made in her own career growth to date. It's a great episode and you won't want to miss out. Also, if you did enjoy this week's episode or any of our first episodes so far, I do have a small favor to ask. Since we're a new podcast, I'm trying to help us build up some street cred. And I'd love to ask you for a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, aka iTunes. You can take a shortcut right to the iTunes page at figuringitoutpodcast.com slash iTunes. Now, obviously, I want you to be honest in your review, but if you do like our show and you have a minute to spare, we'd love a positive review. I hope you enjoyed this episode about shifting from a corporate role to a startup job with fintech leader, Samantha Koo. I'm Melissa Guller, and you've been listening to Figuring It Out. See you next week.